My name is Tim, I'm an alcoholic. Thank you very much for inviting me today um, and extending to me the opportunity to speak to you for a while on steps 10 and 11. Before I get to that, however, um, those steps only make sense in a context. And the context is twofold. It's firstly my alcoholism, the problem that I'm here to solve. And secondly, what I did in the first nine steps. I don't know exactly where I was 30 years ago, uh, but I can tell you around that period, boy, was I drinking. Um, the consequences of my drinking are neither here nor there. I mean, uh, uh, su suffice it to say that by the summer of 1990, my drinking, which had not continued for all that long, it wasn't that many years. The consequences were sufficient for me to say, I never want to be here again. Uh, here being the emotional and physical state I was in. I was wrecked because of alcohol by, uh, certainly by June 1990. Uh, uh, I'd been depressed and neurotic before I ever drank. But uh, I'd crossed over to the other side of the looking glass in my drinking. I was in an entirely new world. I was in an upside down world. And I was done. But I had no idea what powerlessness is. And I go to a lot of, I have to say, I go to a lot of AA meetings. <laughs> um, and I think powerlessness is immensely understood in AA, in my opinion. I, in fact, misunderstood it greatly for a number of years after I got to AA. My date of sobriety is the 24th of July 1993, and the mathematicians amongst you will therefore understand it was three years before me deciding to drink, uh, to stop drinking, and my last drink. So those three years are very instructive for me. But back to this question of powerlessness. Uh, I had trouble with the notion of powerlessness when I was new. I knew I uh, I knew that my drinking was a disaster and I never wanted to drink again. This was in 1993. But sometimes when people shared about powerlessness, uh, they talked about drinking against one's will uh, or, or drinking despite these desperate attempts to stop. I had occasional moments of grace where I was separated from alcohol, where the desire arose within me to be sober for a while. I didn't create the desire, I didn't think it through and produce it, but it was just there. So far so good, except my mind would then change, I'd seem to want to drink again, and lo and behold I would drink again. So at each point I was only ever doing what I wanted to do at the time. This, is, this didn't appear to me to be drinking against my will, that every drink I had appeared in the moment of drinking to be absolutely in accordance with my will. I want a drink, I'm going to have one. I want a drink, I'm going to have one. Now, how is that powerlessness? To me, um, powerlessness is about lack of choice 
Now, what that means is uh, if I've got two or more options, choice can be exercise. If I have only one option, there is no choice. I may be enthusiastic about that choice, but it's not a real choice. And when the thought of a drink occurred to me, there was no choice because it was the only path ahead. And the fact that I desired it greatly is a fig leaf for powerlessness, because there were actually a few occasions where I desperately didn't want to drink. Um, um, once with my family, who, where they were very twitchy about alcoholism. Uh, once on a particularly important date, one of those early dates before you've got them to sign on the dotted line. And I desperately needed not to get drunk on these two occasions because it would be miserable and dull. And it was on those occasions that I realised grimly that there was no choice. There was only one option available. And my, I could either consent to it enthusiastically or I could resist it. But it was going to happen. And this is the nature of my powerlessness. It's like being a, it's like being a train on a train track with no control over the points. I'm going to end up at the destination. And at a lot of my early AA meetings, I, I largely go to step meetings now, so this is less the case today, but a lot of my early meetings, people talked about two things. People talked about consequences of their drinking, and people talked about this thing called unmanageability, as they referred to it, which was uh, all of the external things which went wrong or indeed internal states, a combination of disorganisation and incompetence and neurosis. Um, now, with any luck at all, I was certainly incompetent when I got to AA. I was certainly neurotic when I got to AA, and I was certainly disorganised. But I've met many people over the years that come to AA without any neurosis, without uh, chaotic lives, who are perfectly competent at running households with happy marriages, happy except in as far as the drinking is affecting it. And there's this deeper meaning to powerlessness and unmanageability in particular, and I think the two are melded, uh, that powerlessness is my inner state, unmanageability is the consequence. To manage something is to direct the course of something successfully in accordance with one's will. And I was not directing the course of my life. The course of my life was directed by whether or not I drank. And I was not in charge of that. And there's a wonderful line in the 12 and 12 in the big book. It doesn't clearly explain man unmanageability. Uh, there are lots of pages on powerlessness. And then you get to page 59 and they introduce the notion of unmanageability. There's no definition of it there. They just said blithely, we were admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And then it goes on to something else. And so you ask 100 people in AA what's unmanageability, you'll probably get 100 different answers because the definition isn't in the book. There's a definition of physical craving. There's a definition of the mental obsession. But unmanageability is different. Um, 
And this is where I refer to the 12 and 12, where it talks about how you can get someone to see their unmanageability when their external life is in order. And the same would apply in the big book to this character, Fred, on page 39, whose life was in order, except for his drinking, and his emotional state was in order, except for his drinking. And in the 12 and 12, it explains it very clearly and very simply that years before we realised it, we were in the grip of a, a fatal progression. And that is the point of my powerlessness and unmanageability. The reason it had to stop, my drinking had to stop, was not because of the consequences I'd already suffered. It's the fact that I had a one-way ticket to death. And unless I was given a new ticket, it was going to kill me. Simple as that. I was not in charge of the course of my life. And recognising in step one that I was not in charge of the course of my life, it, it makes everything else a lot easier. I'm not in charge anyway. You say to me in step three, hey, do you want to turn your will and life over to a power greater than yourself? I was down with that the first time I drank. Alcohol, do what, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I was already well practiced in turning my will and life over to the power, a power greater than myself. The question is only which power. Um, I believe I'm the picker. I get to pick which power I'm going to serve. I can pick the voices in my mind which demand that I run around trying to get things from the world to make me happy, alcohol chief amongst them. Or I can try and listen to a different voice. And that voice won't tell me what to go and get, it will tell me what to do, <laughs> which is entirely different. And the journey of the first nine steps which freed me from the endless compulsions in my mind, the compulsions in my mind. Uh, Chuck Chamberlain talks about them in a throwaway line, the obsessions of the mind, and that can cover a lot of behaviour patterns. Um, the journey of the first nine steps to help me overcome those obsessions of the mind and choose differently, the purpose of it, is to go from me being concerned with my welfare and your conduct, just how I got to AA, to being concerned with my conduct and your welfare. Um, I take my sobriety very seriously um, and I take my uh, AA life very seriously. That they. I'm, apparently, I'm not a Jesuit, but my Jesuit friends tell me that some, it's sometimes said amongst the Jesuits that uh, if you give the Jesuits a seven-year-old child to teach and train and school, then, you know, that child's heart will be devoted to the Jesuits for the rest of its life. Um, and it's a bit like that with AA. It got me young. It got me at the age of 21. So um, I, I'm very uh, devoted to it because I... I I have known nothing else in my adult life which worked. Uh, the, my 
basic approach to life did not work. And frankly, in the family I grew up in, in the environment I grew up in, I was not surrounded with examples of people that were thriving. Um, much like in society as a whole, there was a lot of tension. People were, were not relaxed. Um, I got all the examples of how to live from people in AA, so I, I'm very devoted to it. And I know which side of my bread is butted. I, I, I pay attention in AA to what happens to people long term. And there was someone I remember from my early meetings who would be, I think, 31 years sober now, but around his 30th AA birthday, which was his uh, uh, 60th um, natal birthday, he decided to celebrate with a glass of champagne. Afterwards, a number of us spoke to him. He's now taking crack and living in doorways. He explained it in a lucid moment afterwards. He said, there were things I did not believe would ever get better. So his life was great by his own admission, but there were corners where he had no hope. And he believes that's the doorway through which active alcoholism returned to his life. So I have a zero tolerance policy to my own upset and my own bad behaviour. It doesn't mean I don't get upset. It doesn't mean I don't behave badly. Not a day goes by without me doing something I regret or me getting wrapped up in a situation which is none of my business. So but by zero tolerance, what I mean is I don't let things build up. Um, I clean behind the cooker on a regular basis. Because the, uh, I mean, the ultimate reason is that I don't want to drink. And I recognise that I will if things build up. But more important than that, I woke up. Um, when I completed step nine. Over the first 16 years in AA, I did a lot of work. I did a lot of service. I sponsored a bunch of people. I went to countless meetings. I did a number of inventories. I did a number of step fives. I did a pretty good run at steps eight and nine in my first year. But there were corners of my mind which were never cleaned. Uh, there were, I hadn't been taught effectively how to forgive. I'd been taught how to sweep under the carpet, but I hadn't been taught how to forgive. And around 15 years sober, I heard uh, an American speaker called Paul Martin, who died a few years ago with 62 years of sobriety. And his articles, he wrote a number of articles for the Grapevine magazine. If you get a subscription to Grapevine, it's Paul M. from Riverside, Illinois, Chicago. And it changed my life. He talked about a couple of things. 
he talked about doing multiple fifth steps. So taking your fifth step with a whole bunch of people. And he talked about scouring every corner of your past to find any relationship where there was a disruption, where there was harmful behaviour and doing your absolute utmost, not in God's time, now, doing your absolute utmost to make these amends. And at 16, 15, 16 years sober, I made, uh, uh, I had a, a step eight list with 70 odd people on it. I swept through the list and dealt with it in nine days. And something happened. I remember very clearly two thoughts that day. The first one was, there is nothing wrong with me. There always has been plenty wrong with my beliefs, my thinking, my behaviour. That me, I'm okay, and so are you. The second thought was, my God, there's a lot of suffering out there. I was always aware of the suffering within me. And I could acknowledge intellectually the suffering that you were going through, but I couldn't feel it. It took being free of any guilt for what I'd done by making amends and handing over to the higher power anything I couldn't make amends for because uh, I couldn't find them. It took being free of my own guilt to feel other people's suffering. And with that recognition of the enormity of the suffering around me in AA came a moral obligation which will never be fully discharged to devote my life to being of service, um, obviously outside AA, in my two jobs, in my family, in my household but chiefly within AA and that service, of course, we have to do lots of practical things. But that service is to help other people wake up. That's it. So they don't have to drink and can thrive. That context is necessary to understand the function of steps 10 and 11 in my life. The content of my life is step 12, which means that uh, there are three elements to that. The first element is that I must remain awake. So it's no good waking up if you fall asleep again. Um, I've got to remain awake and remaining awake, I must be of maximum service in AA and I must be of maximum service outside AA. Now that requires a bit of preparation. You can't just run at it. Um, the preparation on a daily basis comes in steps uh, 10 and 11, or more properly in a way, 11 and 10. When it says in step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, I'm paraphrasing very slightly there. What is my life? but a sequence of days. And what is the first thing it asks me to do in the morning on awakening? I ask God to direct my thinking. So the only real 
<laughs> the only time I have to myself is entirely to myself is the moment between awakening and saying, God, please direct my thinking. Now, all hell can break loose in those few moments. <laughs> and all hell will definitely break loose if I do not ask God to direct my thinking on a daily basis. And then last thing at night, um, I always pray at the moment. <laughs> I can't say I've done this consistently for 27 years, but at the moment, the last thing I do at night is pray. And everything else in between is encapsulated by those two prayers. Step 11 in the morning and step 11 in the evening give me uh, a, a structure for the day and how to plan for it. In the morning, I'm planning for it. In the evening, I'm debriefing with the higher power. Um, and I'm going to go into detail about all of these presently. At the bottom of page 87, there's also an emergency pit stop procedure when agitated or doubtful. So step 11 provides me with three things. It provides me with morning activities, it provides me with end of the day activities, and it provides me with an emergency pit stop procedure. As in Penelope pit stop, if anyone remembers her. Hail, she would cry, and they, there you are on page 87. There's the answer to the, the, the plea for help. Um, step 10 is everything else in between. So step 12 is the content of my life. Steps 11 and 10 are the method. The relationship with the higher power. So what, what am I asking to direct my thinking? Um, if you don't know what the higher power is, I was talking to someone who's six days sober yesterday, bless her, and uh, she was saying she had no idea what the, the higher power was. She'd been in AA for some time, but she had no idea what the higher power was. She couldn't define it. Um, if I'm going on holiday to France, I don't need to understand France before going on a trip there. What do I need? I need a passport and a ticket. <laughs> and when I get there, I'll find out what it is. And any opinion I have, any views I have about what France is before I go, do not change what France is. <laughs> what I need is a method of getting there. And it's exactly the same with the higher power. Um, uh, trying to understand God in my experience, before one develops a relationship with God is, well, it's a it's a bold ambition. Let's 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 put it politely as that it's bold. Um, it's not a feasible one either. What is feasible is to understand. If I develop a relationship with God, what that relationship will prov provide to me from my selfish starting point as an alcoholic. Um, I want something. I want something. Well, what am I going to get, God, if you're going to have a relationship with me? What am I going to get out of it? 
page 85 tells me right at the bottom it says uh, all the references are to the big book unless I otherwise indicate uh, bottom of 85 much has already been said about receiving strength inspiration and direction from him who has all knowledge and power and that to me is more than enough to go on so whatever I'm forming a relationship with has all knowledge and all power and what, what are the commodities? Strength, inspiration and direction. Inspiration and direction really cover the same territory. Um, I thought for a long time, and sometimes you'll hear the idea in step three. People will talk about step three and say, uh, you've got to get out of the driving seat. And now I understand what they're saying, but with a little more nuance, I can make it work for me. I can get in the driving seat of other people's cars. I can be full of opinions about what other people believe and think and feel and say and do. And I helpfully share my, my opinions and views and direction and guidance with other people. Um, sometimes I don't even do that. I just sit in my mind complaining about the rest of the world. This is me trying to drive other people's cars. I do need to get out of the driving seat of other people's cars because I need to get in the driving seat of my car. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, I go through the world like Stalin. What it means is that I'm in, I, God will do for me what I cannot do for myself, but God won't do for me what I can do for myself. Um, um, I, I believe you've had the stones speaking for you um the texas stones as opposed to the rolling stones but stones nonetheless um uh, a few times i've been to texas a lot because my sponsor is there oh one point about sponsorship um sometimes i ask my sponsees to do things like oh come to my home group just once you know little things like that and you know, they complain and they resist and they don't like it and i they tell me off for being wicked and and dictatorial and so on um uh, about 10 years ago 11 10 11 years ago my sponsor said my sponsor who at the time was living in in texas in a particular part of texas said um uh that he was speaking at an aa event in san antonio uh, the i think the 60th anniversary of club 12 and he said i'd like you to come now i was in london this was in san antonio in texas and the order in which i responded to him was this yes what will it involve not what will it involve and then maybe i'll think about it and yes and i think the reason i'm sober today in large part is attributable to that attitude which for, i was graced in 1993 when the people i gave spiritual consent to, to in other words i trusted when they asked me to do something in aa i said yes first and asked questions later. Anyway, back to the point. The point was, when I was in Texas a few years ago, I was at a meeting 
and a woman called Pookie. I don't know where she is now. I've met her once. That was it. She, she said, you've got to take action to activate your faith. God ain't going to slide no hot dog under your door. So I've got to drive the car of my life. No one is going to drive it for me. If I'm perpetually late, it's no good me praying to God, asking God to remove my character defect of tardiness. I need to set an alarm. I need to go to bed early and I need to get up when the alarm goes off. That's not God's job. That's mine. So the relationship with God is one of a division. There's a division of labor here. I've got to take the action. I've got to drive the car. But to drive the car, uh, I need two things. I need fuel in the engine and I need a working satellite navigation system. And this is what the relationship with the higher power, this is where the, the rubber hits the road of the relationship with the higher power, is asking for two things. When I wake up in the morning, all I need to know is, God, what tasks do you want me to perform today? What spirit do you want me to perform those tasks in? Um, for situ There are lots of situations during the day where you can't plan them out. If a sponsor, if a tricky sponsee is calling, you can't plan out word for word what you're going to say, but you can. Um, you can adopt policies, you can adopt principles uh, to govern those situations. That's what I'm supposed to ask my higher power for in the morning and the strength to do it. And, and it's a, to me, it's as simple as that. Um, what it also talks about, though, in this, in this preparation for the day, is, this is on page 87, if circumstances warrant, we ask our wives or friends to join us in morning meditation. And at the moment, uh, in the current situation, um, I'm holding a, a, an evening meeting six days a week for some friends of mine. I say friends, it's now we're now getting 60 or 70 people in the evening sometimes. And in the morning as well at 7 a.m., um, we're getting around 20 to 30 people in the morning and we join in morning meditation. I think it's probably the best thing I've ever done in my recovery is this 20 minute morning meditation meeting where we read. Uh, we've divided the step 11 passage from the big book into in, in the step 11 morning passage into seven elements one for each day of the week and then we introduce a little reading every day from some spiritual source and then we meditate for two minutes and then we share and uh i think my emotional stability over the last two months has been greater than at any point in my recovery from which i learned two things Number one, my circumstances have no relationship to my state of mind. Secondly, because my circumstances are obviously constrained like everyone else's. Secondly, um, why did I wait almost 27 years to follow a perfectly simple, plain instruction in the big book? My natural response to most instructions in the big book is, oh, that's probably very useful for other people. Um, I have to remember, if it's written there, it's written for me. 
as I identify with the brand of alcoholism described in the big book. Next slide. If we belong to a religious denomination which requires a definite morning devotion, we attend to that also. If not members of religious bodies, we sometimes select and memorise a few set prayers which emphasise the principles we have been discussing. Um, it doesn't matter if a person is religious or not. Um, this passage is immensely important to me. Um, the These formal set prayers in the morning. It's a very unfashionable idea in modern society to say set prayers. Um, in fact, there's a lot of criticism of the practice because it is said by some people, well, if you're saying the same prayers day after day, you know, sometimes your heart isn't in it. My experience of saying prayers that two days out of three I don't believe in because I do I do these formal set prayers two days out of three I'm not connecting I don't uh, I know I technically know what I'm reading but my mind is all over the place but the fact and I actually say them I don't just run through them in my mind I kind of whisper them to myself so my physical body has to be saying the prayers it has an enormously powerful effect, and the effect is this. I believe my soul is fine. My problem is my bodily life. My problem is not my spirit. My problem is how I interact in the world. In giving that time every day, I'm, I'm reinforcing to myself day after day after day that the most important thing is my relationship with God. And I'm forcing my body to actually demonstrate that by saying the prayers. And when I do that often enough, I suddenly discover myself completely absorbed in one line of the prayer or one word of the prayer. And it's an absorption I couldn't have experienced if I didn't know the prayer inside out and hadn't said it a thousand times. There are lots of things which are as I say, unpopular in modern society. But you look at traditions and if you practice the tradition for long enough without arguing with it, you discover that's why they did it. And a lot of things make sense to me which didn't make sense to me before. One doesn't have to be denominational for this. You can pick them from anywhere. What the prayers that I say in the morning also do, um, the ones that I use in large part are about the nothingness of self and the allness of God. I discover myself all through the day remembering individual lines or, or remembering individual ideas. When I feel that, that there's a, um, one of the prayers that I use invokes the idea of a canopy of peace dropping down to cover you. Another of the prayers imagines you being on the top of a mountain and being like the chick of a huge bird of prey. So uh, dangerous and self-sufficient, but it looks after its own. And being under the pinions, as it's put in one of the translations, being under the wings, safe. And you imagine an eagle on an, an eagle's nest 
so high on the mountain that nothing can get to it and being safe as one of the chicks under those wings. I can say those prayers, as I say a thousand times, and they mean nothing. Then I'm in a crisis and the first thought that comes to me is I'm safe. And one of those images from one of those prayers comes to me at just the right moment. Um, I was in a meeting many years ago. It was a big book meeting. Uh, and it was on step six and seven. And if you're familiar with the big book, you'll recall that the step six and seven passage in the big book is is short. And not particularly inspiring. It's very concrete. There's a little prayer. Boom, you're done. Step seven completed. And I remember the first person that shared after the reading said, well, I didn't get much out of that. My experience with step 11 is. I misjudged, I've misjudged step 11 for most of my recovery. I've treated step 11 like planting a seed in the ground, looking at it and two minutes later wondering where the tomatoes are. And thinking, well, there are no tomatoes. I didn't get much of that. I, I'm not going to I'm not going to do this again, as though the purpose of it is to produce some sort of instant result, like alcohol will give you a very quick result. You know, you might be thrilled or elated or you might throw up or you might get arrested. But whatever the consequence, it's pretty instant. The thing about step 11, in my experience, is it's a it's a it's a slow burn. I no longer expect instant results from step 11. What I notice is massive changes in my attitude towards the world. Uh, after a period of doing step 11 very, very assiduously for, you know, an hour to an hour and a half every morning for a while, I discovered myself. I've always been someone that gets very cross about the news. So I, do, I don't. My other half listens to the uh, this three hour news program in the morning on the radio every morning and and we, we we have a system where when I go into the kitchen to get a cup of coffee he turns the radio off so I don't have to be exposed to it because otherwise I'll probably start squawking at it so he turns the radio off I pour my coffee I go out I hear the radio go back on again so I, I'm very reactive to things but what I discovered after doing step 11 very assiduously was that my mind would start to attack something, either you or my home group or politicians or whoever it is. And involuntarily, I would pull back from it. I've got to judge the effectiveness of my program, not by the instant results I'm getting, but, but, but by the results I'm getting across the whole grand sweep of my life. That's where the, the the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and that's the eating. It's not how I feel after the step 11. And the same goes for other step work as well. Uh, sometimes people get very excited after completing step nine or doing step nine amends. Often I felt dejected and sad. 
because you can make amends, but you can't change the past. But the effect across my life was enormous. So I don't judge things by the same with sponsee interactions. Some sponsee interactions are very tough. Uh, I've had very tough conversations um, with my own sponsor. I described myself to a sponsee yesterday. I said, I'm a bit of a barrister Rottweiler. He said, yes, you are. <laughs> he didn't argue with that one. The conversations are not comfortable. This is not about instant comfort. It's about the effect across my life. So step 11 in the morning is about, yes, it's about planning the day. It's about getting knowledge of God's will for me about exactly what I'm supposed to be doing during the course of that day. But it's also about establishing my right relationship with God and the rest of the universe, which is I'm simply here to be a servant of the higher power. That is it. And it takes a lot of prayer and a lot of uh, meditation. I, I'm, I'm not. Um, I don't use a huge amount of those mindfulness or Eastern practices. My form of meditation is to is to contemplate closely the lines of the prayers that I'm using rather than just rattle. Sometimes I rattle, but sometimes I concentrate very closely on that and meditate on word by word by word. The job of that puts me in my right place in the universe. My natural um, instinct and my ego instinct is to place myself at the center of the universe, like a sort of king on a throne, wanting things to be brought to me. Um, and it takes a lot to turn that round. And so I spend a lot of time in step 11. When we retire at night, um, so top of page 86 is the evening review. Um, I've heard a lot of people over the years talk about, as they put it, doing my step tens. And when someone says they are doing their step tens, what they usually mean or what they often mean, in my experience, is doing a daily written inventory using the columns system from the step four resentment inventory. And I have no comment on that practice uh, other than I haven't found that to be immensely useful on a regular basis. I, I find going back to step four and using the columns approach, plus the questions on page 67, enormously useful for troubleshooting situations which are novel, persistent or baffling, but not as a routine response to the daily emotions. I use uh, for, for the daily inventory, the inventory described on step 11, uh, in step 11 on page 86, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. And it's not by accident that this is topped with we constructively review and, and tailed with, but we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse or morbid reflection. Because I've told you about my propensity to attack. Well, I can attack myself. However I treat others practically or mentally will be how I treat myself. And a great danger for me is to turn the knife on myself in step 11. 
in any infantry crisis, in fact, I've got to remember that there is nothing wrong with me. There is a problem only with my beliefs, my thinking and my behaviour. And those things were taught to me. I'm responsible for doing something about them, not for the fact they're there in the first place. So at the end of the day, I'm not supposed to be beating myself up. Uh, this also is in the context of a relationship with God. So I, it's not me with a pen and a piece of paper in the dark, in a corner on my own, um, flagellating myself. I'm supposed to be in God's presence to do this. This is part of my relationship with God in the same way that you go and see your you might go and see a boss at the end of the day and report in this is what i've done today this is what what went well this is what went badly and a good boss will say good effort here are a couple of things i'd like you to do differently tomorrow and that's what i'm aiming to get out of those questions is not this endless rehashing of the same resentful thoughts again and again and again uh, it's, it's very interesting to me on page 86, it says, were we resentful, selfish, dishonest or afraid, full stop. It doesn't ask for analysis. Those are yes, no questions. Was I resentful? Yes. Was I selfish? Yes. It's not asking me for. To, one can breach the principles of the program, I believe, in two ways. Either by doing less than is asked of me, or by doing more than is asked of me. Um, more and more over time, I'm going back to the what they refer to as the black bits of the page. So I've tried this, just admitting to my higher power, yeah, I've been resentful again. Yeah, I've been frightened. The content is neither here nor there. On pages 64 to 67, I established that resentment is a waste. I established many things about resentment. First of all, it's going to make me unhappy. Secondly, it's futile in that it doesn't achieve anything. Thirdly, resentment is a catastrophic waste of time. Uh, the time I pour into resentment could be poured into some constructive activity or pleasant contemplation. Uh, what other problems are there with resentment? Well, if I stay resentful long enough, my other half, who is not in recovery, describes resentment as putting up an umbrella on a sunny day and I need the sun to live. I will drink again if I remain resentful. Then it talks about how other people's wrongdoing, real or fancied, uh, dominated us. It had the power to kill. So if I'm resentful, I'm putting other people's behaviour, real or fancied, in charge of my emotions. And as soon as my emotions are turbulent, they, on a bad day, will take charge of my actions and therefore my life. So I've got half a dozen 
very good reasons for not wanting resentment. For, for I've already recognised it's a waste of time and it's wrong and there's no mileage in it. I don't need to analyse the latest resentment in order to reprove the theorem. It's exactly the same with fear. Uh, it talks about on page 68, it asks, it, it asks us a question when we list our fears. Why did we have them? And it knows we're going to come up with the wrong answer. So it gives us an answer in the form of a rhetorical question. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? He doesn't trust us to answer the question ourselves. So he gives us the answer to save us the bother. So when he says, wasn't it because, because self-reliance failed us, I am to take this as true. There we go. They were only four years sober, but they were four years sober on the back of thousands of years of spiritual growth, which they were very in contact with from various religious traditions. People do down the people who wrote the big book on the basis of their length of sobriety. If one takes the length of the spiritual journey undertaken by humanity to get to 1939, it's a different matter altogether. There is huge wisdom in it, which is not it's not out of nothing, that wisdom there. So fear and self-reliance. When I'm frightened, I think something is going to happen in the world that I don't want to happen because it's not part of my blueprint for the universe. Self-reliance is having a blueprint for the universe and pinning my happiness on it. No blueprint, no fear. My reliance must be only on things which are not of this world. It must so the, the, the things which really matter to me, which I've decided matter to me, are my identity, my purpose, and therefore my safety. My identity is given to me. Again, you don't have to make any of this up. You don't even have to think it through. It, the book presents me some, with some ideas. I won't like them, but I don't need to like them. I need to practice them. When I practice them, I discover they're true, which circumvents the whole argument. It, so it tells me on page 28. If what we have learnt and felt and seen means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed or colour, are the children of a living creator. Well, that's very good. So that's who I am. I'm a child of a living creator. That means everyone else is my brother and sister. and I must treat them as such. That has now solved my identity problem. Whenever I have low self-worth, it's because I forget that. Or whenever I have excessively high self-worth or inappropriate self-worth pinned to achievement or appearance or anything else. I've forgotten that basic truth. If I'm in touch with that, nothing that happens in the universe can take that away or damage that in any way at all. And so that's identity. My purpose is given to me as well. I won't be able to find it now. Oh, here we go. Page 49. Um, the phrase spearheads of God's ever advancing creation. So God is creative. I'm to be creative. I'm to use my time constructively, moment in, moment out, day in, day out, to be 
the hands of God in the world to be creative, to create, not destroy. And I don't believe that purpose is any different than anyone else's. Um, and my safety lies in those two things. If I'm if I'm a child of a living creator, that higher power doesn't have a body. So I don't either. Children are like their offspring. Uh, so I happen to be running around in a physical body, but it's not me. My life is not me. My body is not me. My circumstances are not me. If something happens to them, so be it. If they all turn to dust, so be it. I am fine because I'm spirit. That can't be hurt. That can't be harmed. So my safety and security lies in knowing what my identity and my purpose is. This purpose of, of acting constructively is regardless of results. Because as we said earlier, uh, instant results are, are a very poor way of judging the efficacy of some action. If you put seeds in, a ground, in the ground and two minutes later they haven't grown, it would be foolish to conclude that the seeds don't work, that you've wasted your time. That being the case, there is nothing to fear. Now, if the evening inventory is part of step 11, well, what is step 10? And there's lots of commentary in the big book, but it's terribly simple. And I think I've got about three minutes left, so I'm going to keep this brisk. Um, the instructions, there are two bits of instructions on step 10. The first one is on 84. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment and fear. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. It's very like the evening exercise. So I simply admit to God that my mind has gone elsewhere. Where should my mind be? It should be present. Um, uh, a, a friend of mine uh, says that uh, uh, there's a story he tells about uh, I think three novice monks or something like that, who went on a bicycle ride. And they came back from the bicycle ride and uh, the teacher says to them, so what was your experience of the bicycle ride? And the first one said, well, I used it to practice my French irregular verbs and I've really got them down now. It's wonderful. And the teacher says, that's not bad. And he says to the second one, what about you? And he says, well, I contemplated the glory of God. And the teacher says, that's not bad. And the third one, rather sheepishly, said, I was just riding my bike. And the teacher said, that's the answer we're after. So that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm, you know, God gives me a bunch of things today. I've got to trust that having my mind and heart present for those things is God's will and is sufficient. And it doesn't need me to stand outside those events or activities commenting on them or having my mind completely elsewhere and distracted. Step 10 is about adjusting the steering wheel to keep the car on the road. When I divert from it, come back. Just come back. Um, in, in Hebrew, the, the, the word for repentance uh, uh, is literally, uh, is the sense of returning, turning around and coming back. And that's what I'm doing in step 
10. And then it gives me rather than just I don't I don't wrestle with problems today. I can't be bothered. If I've got a problem, the higher power has the problem. I just so I'll just show me what to do. I'm I'm fed up thinking everything through. I'm just I'm done. Change doesn't happen in my experience by me uh, staring into the darkness, trying to understand it. That's not how it works. Change happens by switching the light on. And then it's all apparent. And the light comes on, middle of 85. And this is the next actual instruction for step 10. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will not mine be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. That means that that should be, those should be the uppermost thoughts in my mind. The more I can say those prayers to myself, the better. We can exercise our willpower along this line, all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. And I'm going to finish on this point. That uh, step three and the remaining nine steps, which are the implementation of that. They're not about me sitting in the middle of the room like a potato waiting for God to give me things. I'm to exercise my will vigorously to do what God asks me to do. It isn't always comfortable, but it's always worth it. Thanks for listening.